This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for December 16th, 2020. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, in the past week, we've seen one vaccine receive emergency use authorization from the FDA, and another that's going to be reviewed by the FDA Advisory Committee tomorrow. We know that even if the second vaccine receives an EUA, we're still going to need many more to get a large part of the population vaccinated. So today I'd like to talk about the broader picture of vaccine development. But before we do that, we published a study of another drug that's already received an EUA for COVID-19, baricitinib. This drug had been approved for other indications, so it's been available to clinicians all along. But this is really our first look at the data that supports the EUA and data that might give us some guidance on how to use the drug. So what did we learn about baricitinib? Steve, baricitinib is a Janus kinase, or JAK inhibitor, that's used to treat rheumatoid arthritis. JAK is one of the key molecules that mediates signaling by pro-inflammatory cytokines. So if you block JAK, you block a lot of the inflammation that can occur downstream of these signals. The rationale for using this drug mirrors that seen with other drugs such as dexamethasone, a drug which has already been shown to decrease death rates in patients with moderate to severe COVID-19, and another drug, tocilizumab, which has not yet shown to have that effect. Like these drugs, baricitinib might be expected to have a maximal benefit in the inflammatory stage of disease when viral replication has already decreased and is not the real driver of pathology, but some sort of inappropriate inflammatory cascade appears to be the problem. The trouble is it can be difficult to identify the patients who fall into that category. So in this trial, which is different from these other trials, the antiviral drug remdesivir was included in combination with baricitinib, and that gives you sort of a one-two punch. So in principle, the combination could treat patients in different stages of infection. The trial was a large trial. It was supported and designed by the NIH, and it enrolled patients in a wide variety in 67 sites, mostly in the U.S., but with small numbers in several other countries. The enrollment criteria were really quite liberal. Almost any hospitalized patient with at least moderate hypoxemia was eligible. However, patients could not receive corticosteroids for treatment of their COVID-19, only for other unrelated indications. All patients received remdesivir for 10 days since the trial was started before the use of a shorter course of the drug. And they were randomized to receive either baricitinib or placebo. Patients were followed for their clinical response. The primary outcome was time to recovery as measured using a clinical scale that's been employed in many of the COVID-19 trials. There were several secondary outcomes, including one that we really care about, mortality. The investigators were able to enroll more than 1,000 participants, so they ended up with just over 500 in each group. Two-thirds of those were considered to have moderate disease, while the remainder had more severe disease, including 10% who were either receiving mechanical ventilation or ECMO at the time of enrollment. What they found is that adding baricitinib to remdesivir had a slight positive effect, with a median time to recovery of seven days in the baricitinib group versus eight days in the placebo group and a 95% confidence interval that barely excluded no effect. Patients who had somewhat more severe disease seem to have more benefit in subgroup analyses, but these secondary analyses have limited reliability. There was a decreased rate of death in the baricitinib group, but the confidence bounds were quite wide, and it's difficult to know if these results would hold up 
in a study that was powered to look specifically at mortality rather than this other clinical endpoint that they used. There were no particularly concerning safety signals. Baricitinib can predispose to infection with more chronic use, but at least in this smaller short-term study, there didn't appear to be an issue. This was a very carefully done, well-designed trial, but at least for me, I'm not sure that it gives much clinical direction, and I'm going to be curious to hear what Lindsay thinks about it. The study was started before the results of the recovery trial were known, and that's the study which showed that there's a mortality benefit for treating with dexamethasone. It's very difficult to compare the two studies. They had different study designs. They were done at different times with somewhat different groups of patients. Right now, the most convincing data are that dexamethasone saves lives in a group that resembles those that had benefit here. But we can't tell what role remdesivir played, nor how much other supportive therapies have changed over time and over the different study sites that they used. For my part, I suspect that I'll continue to recommend that dexamethasone be used in patients with more severe disease, as it's far cheaper and I find the evidence to be much stronger. But baricitinib may continue to have a niche, for example, in patients who have a contraindication to corticosteroids. Well, Eric, I'm glad you're interested in what I think, because you don't know Jack. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, I think what we see in this study is clinical research is really hard. And there are so many Goldilocks elements. Do we understand the disease pathogenesis and implicit in the study design and the way you framed it are the antiviral or the direct viral effects that remdesivir is targeting and the immunopathology, which the immunomodulators such as baricitinib or dexamethasone are targeting. These may occur at different periods of infection. And so it becomes complicated to know how to use these different therapies or use them together. For example, with the monoclonal antibodies, one wants to use them before autologous immunity emerges, another complicating feature. I raise this because it just speaks to how complicated human biology is, how rigorous the studies need to be to have a homogeneous population, and how many factors are at play that have to be considered. And ultimately, the pathway that baricitinib is targeting, which is the immunopathology, overlaps with the pathway that other immunomodulators like a decadron impact. And so I share your sentiment that the data are not overwhelming and the endpoints chosen, which makes sense from a research standpoint, which is time to improvement, are not as robust or hardy as mortality. So these investigators have done a terrific study. I think they've informed us of this pathway being relevant to disease pathogenesis and ameliorable to targeting. But whether or not it is clear enough to be used clinically is opaque because of the complexity of the illness and the simplicity of some of the alternative therapies available. And so I, my hat's off to the investigators, but I think clinically, given the Goldilocks issue of where an illness and what is the access to this medication, make this not as easily deployable as glucocorticoids. I think we've had a number of these sorts of drug trials where we see some benefit. I'd add the monoclonal antibodies that you discussed as well, where it's very difficult to extrapolate from the clinical data we have to an individual patient. And a lot of that is 
not just the underlying biology, as you point out, but also the timing, that these trials were done at different times and started when the state of knowledge was different. And so we'd love to have a direct comparison of some of these therapies, but of course we can't because we didn't know that one or another would work at any given time. So we may eventually learn this, but we'll have to see how much disease continues to be out there as hopefully we start to deploy vaccines and get a little more disease control. I mean, I think, Eric, you highlight the point of secular trends. The way we take care of our patients with COVID in December of 2020 is substantially different than May of 2020. Even though that only sounds like a few months and same institution and same providers and same intensive care units, the fact is the background care is substantially different. And unless you have contemporaneous control data, it is hard to extrapolate across data sets that are across time, even if not across space. So getting back to vaccines, here in the United States, we have one vaccine that's just been approved and another that might be available soon. But they're both in very short supply. It's not even clear that there'll be enough to vaccinate the very highest priority people. So what's on the horizon to fill this gap? There are several more vaccines out there that are in late stage trials and some that have already received what's the equivalent of EUAs in other countries. So they're being used more widely. So let's just briefly review the technologies behind them because to some extent, grouping them by technologies helps understand the specific issues around each kind of vaccine. Although I will say that even within groups, they can be quite different from one another. There are basically five approaches to making vaccines with late stage candidates in four of these. The first group aren't COVID-19 vaccines at all. Instead, they try to increase the amount of nonspecific or innate immunity to protect against a wide variety of infections. The only member of this group that I'm aware of is in stage three trials is the live attenuated vaccine that's used for TB called BCG. My guess is that since this doesn't raise specific immunity, it's not going to produce high levels of protection, even if it produces moderate protection. So while this approach had a lot of appeal before we had specific vaccines, I suspect the interest in it is going to wane as more vaccines become available. The second group is a sort of very traditional group of vaccines that consists of either inactivated whole virus or purified protein subunits that are administered together with adjuvants, compounds that increase inflammation. There are several, including a few that have already been approved for distribution in some countries, not in the US, and they were approved before they underwent phase three testing. So we really don't know what their efficacy or safety looks like, although for most of them there are phase three trials going on at the same time. This is kind of the traditional approach to making vaccines. And there are early phase data for many of these showing a good immune response. We have a lot of experience with making these vaccines, although there can be challenges to producing them at scale and testing their reproducibility because they can vary quite a bit from batch to batch. Thirdly, we've got the viral vectored vaccines. There are several more candidates out there. All of the ones that are in late phase trial use what are called replication incompetent adenoviruses, adenoviral vectors that can't cause disease in humans. Although there are other viral vectors that are under investigation. All of these deliver the gene encoding the viral spike glycoprotein, which is 
the target for almost all vaccines other than the whole viral inactivated vaccines. And these have proven now, we know, to have efficacy. Again, some of these are being widely distributed before their phase three trials are available, but we do have the first phase three data on one of these vaccines that was published a couple of weeks ago. But we do have the first phase three data on one of these vaccines. The results of a relatively large trial were published a couple of weeks ago in The Lancet. The vaccine appeared to be safe and effective in a relatively large trial, as I said, but how efficacious it is isn't really clear. There were some hiccups in the trial execution, which makes the overall results somewhat challenging to interpret. But the efficacy was something on the order of 70% if you take all the groups as planned. So for now, it doesn't look quite as good as the mRNA vaccines that have come up for EUA before the FDA. But I think we'll have to see. Um, one of these vaccines, by the way, is being tested as a single dose instead of two doses, where almost all other vaccines are being administered twice. If we had a single dose vaccine, that would be great. I will say there's no particular reason to think that this vaccine is different from any others, but this is the only large-scale trial looking at a single dose, so that might inform us quite a bit. The fourth group is DNA vaccines. They're just naked DNA that encodes the viral spike protein. There's only one candidate that's gone at all far with this and is not all that far, and we'll have to see how it works. There isn't a great history of DNA vaccines in humans, and there are none available yet, but we'll see how well that one works out. And finally, we've got the two mRNA vaccines from the U.S., and there's at least one from China as well. We know that both the U.S. candidates have high efficacy and are relatively safe, at least in the number of patients who are studied. We knew that both of the U.S. candidates were highly efficacious and relatively safe, at least for the numbers of people who were studied over the course of only a couple of months. Both of these vaccines have issues when it comes to manufacturing and distribution, however. These are the first mRNA vaccines, and we don't really have the systems worked out for efficient large-scale synthesis, or they're being worked out as they're being produced. So they should become better over time, but we're still working that out. And both of the U.S. vaccines at least require freezer storage, one of them in ultra-low freezers, so that makes distribution more expensive and introduces a lot of logistical challenges. So their use may be confined, especially to areas of the world that have access to good freezers. So, Eric, I think that's a terrific summary of the major conceptual vaccine platforms going forward. I sort of think about it as the delivery system and the insert which is complementary to sort of the way you presented the different platforms. The insert, which has to be sorted out, is which part of the pathogen, if we bring out an immune response, will lead to a health effect, control prevention. And here, as you noted, the spike protein has been identified as such a target. And that's because of the way individuals who had natural infection recovered, the nature of the immune response, the structural biology of the virus, and our history of knowing that neutralizing antibodies to part of the viral coat are often effective at preventing disease. So I think that's one key element. And I think both of the mRNA vaccine studies have demonstrated that eliciting immunity to the spike protein has a health effect. The second issue 
which is laid out as you presented the different technologies, is the delivery system. And that's where, how do we get it to the immune system in a thoughtful way to bring out an immune response of relevance, whether it's a stronger antibody response, a stronger T-cell response, a mixed response, more CD4 help or CD8 help, better targeting so you have immune response in tissues of relevance, such as the nasopharynx, so that you have antibodies at the point of contact with the pathogen. These are all properties that the different delivery systems can be exploited to enhance depending on the pathogen's pathogenesis. What's also linked to that, which we in academia and in healthcare don't think about, are the properties of the delivery system on the manufacturing side. What does it take to make the stuff? How quickly can you make the stuff? Can you make the stuff to scale at pharmaceutical grade with high quality manufacturing process? And can you do it to scale? For rare diseases, that's small numbers of doses. For highly transmissible respiratory viral infections, it's all of us, 7 billion. And so the ability to manufacture to scale is also not a trivial consideration. And I think all of these concepts are baked into the different platforms you mentioned and why they have progressed at the different speeds that they have progressed. And one of the things we will have to think about on the other side of this pandemic, which I'm optimistic we will get to, is what have we learned about how we developed our countermeasures and our response, and how does that intersect with speed, science, and the ability to deliver the modality to the relevant communities? And I think all of those are baked into this discussion as we think about improving health, resolving the current pandemic, and preparing for the next one. Lindsay, I just wanted to amplify something that you said, which is there are a lot of different platforms here. There are a lot of different technologies. They are very, very different in approach from each other, and they have many practical consequences, as you said. But they virtually all use the same concept, which is instructing the immune system to mount a response to, in this case, the viral spike glycoprotein. And we now have the proof of concept, as you said, that that works. Since that works, and since we know that many of these technologies, maybe all of the technologies that are in late phase, do elicit a good immune response, I'm very optimistic that a lot of these are going to work independently of the platform that they're using. So I think we are going to have a lot of choices. Now, the details matter. Certainly, the potential adverse events elicited by any of these are going to differ, and that's going to be important, and their overall efficacy might range. But my guess is that most of them are going to be efficacious, and that will be really important because it's going to provide us choices. I am cautiously optimistic that you're correct, and I think that for this pathogen, a little bit of an immunologic head start may be adequate to prevent some of the more severe illness. So I also am optimistic that many, if not all of these, will work to some degree. And you're absolutely right. How well it works? How easy is it to distribute? What are the nature of the side effects in general and in special populations will all be considerations as to how we frame deployment. The sooner we deploy some degree of immunologic protection, hopefully the sooner we can slow down transmission with all of the good consequences that can come from that. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric. And as we near the end of 2020, thanks to our listeners, we won't be meeting next week, 
but we plan to provide an update again on December 30th to close out the calendar year and to look forward to 2021.